Welcome everyone. Uh, great to see you again. My name is Matt. I am one of the leaders here. Happy Winter Olympics to all of you. Um, we are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 12 verse 1 and we'll get started. And um, something new we want to let you know about is that from here forward we're actually going to have um, Bibles in the back. Yes, it only took us like a year to figure that out. Um, so, as you come in, feel free to grab one of the Bibles and use it. If you do not own a Bible, um, please take one. It is yours uh, to keep. But uh, we are continuing in our series on uh, the book of Matthew. And if you've been with us since the beginning, um, you'll know that the first 11 chapters of the book of Matthew um, is a, a, a lot of... Jesus' life and ministry, and, and what's captured in those first 11 chapters, in my mind, is mostly momentum and response. Jesus uh, launches his ministry. He regularly heals the sick and even raises the dead. He preaches the famous uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he, he calls disciples to follow him, and, and the crowds uh, follow along as well. As we end chapter 11, uh, Jesus makes it clear that while many are sort of confused as to just who he is and, and what he's up to, Others uh, have rejected him completely, uh, mostly through kind of a, a numb, unresponsive hard-heartedness and, and just kind of a, a general lack of faith. And that's what we talked about last week. Uh, this week, uh, the tension and rejection are taken to a whole new level as Jesus begins to challenge the Pharisees or the Bible teachers of his day. And the religious establishment begins to make this crucial decision to uh, reject and ultimately kill Jesus. We pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what Daniel did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, he and his companions, and ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are um, ultimately just grateful for the words that you've given us and um, for the revelation you've given of yourself in human history. And as we approach kind of a, a topic and a section that 
that doesn't really naturally speak to us a couple thousand years later, um, God, would you bring this to life? And would we um, almost sense ourselves um, what it would have felt like to, to have been there in the original audience? And, and through that, might we then um, sense what it is that you're speaking to us this morning? Um, and, and we can only do that in, in your power and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So would you open our eyes this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So, first things first, what is the Sabbath? This entire episode takes place on a single day, on the Sabbath day. And the fact that these events unfold on this day is significant. It actually becomes the spark of the controversy. So we need to start by unpacking what the Sabbath day is and why it was so significant uh, to the people that Jesus is talking with. Uh, First, we see from the opening pages of Scripture in the book of Genesis that God creates and orders the world. And if you've ever wondered just what is going on in Genesis, uh, we plan to do an in-depth series on the book of Genesis starting in September. And so some version of clarity is coming. Uh, But for this morning, I just want us to notice one thing. On the sixth day, God creates human beings. Just in time for the seventh day, in which God and humans rest. Genesis 2 says it this way. It says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And and as you continue reading in the following chapters, uh, pretty quickly, humanity begins to spiral downward in rejection of God. Uh, And and over the course of time, God uh, chooses Israel. They're they're sort of chosen, called out, and and created as part of God's redemption plan for humanity. And and then God, in conjunction with uh, Moses, frees Israel from slavery in Egypt, for those of you who know the story, and he brings them out into the desert to become his covenant people. And, And so God meets with Moses on the mountain to give his people the law. Uh, which is uh, the law they are to live by as part of this new covenant that they're forming. And the height of the law given on Mount Sinai is what we call the Ten Commandments, uh, which are still widely known inside and outside of the church. Uh, You shall have no other gods before me. You, You shall not murder. You shall not steal. And on it goes. Well, one of those Ten Commandments was about the Sabbath. And it came with the longest and fullest explanation of any of the ten. Here's what it said. It said, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your sons or daughters, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, it's, nor any followers riding in your town. It's holistic, right? So don't just delegate your work on this day. The entire community, every living being, is to rest on this day. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay? So out of honor to God, and really as a gift to you, I'm asking you and the entire community to refrain from work. Relax, be restored, reconnect with me. Do not work. And then, just to show the importance of this command for the community, in another place the law says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. This is, this is a serious command for the community. So, so the Sabbath is, is a gift to be received. It's also a command for Israel and a lasting part of their covenant relationship together that's to be carried on for generations. Clearly, God was serious about this aspect of their lives. But, but the question quickly becomes, what constitutes work? Okay, so, so Sabbath day is here. I really shouldn't do any work. In fact, at one point, God says, deny yourselves and do not work. Fight that impulse. Come and rest. This is a holy day. Okay, so, so I'm a God-fearing Israelite, part of the people of God, and I want to Sabbath in obedience. I will not work today. But... What does that mean? And there were all sorts of interpretations. In fact, in addition to the written law, which is called the Torah, uh, there developed what was called the oral Torah, uh, or, or the oral tradition, in which the written laws were kind of explained and, and expounded upon. And because the Sabbath was front and center in their communal life with God, uh, there were all sorts of debates going on as to just what could and could not be done on the Sabbath day. Okay, so I probably shouldn't go out to my field and cut or reap. Um, clearly, that's work. What if I accidentally knock over a, a barrel of grain? Can I spend an hour or two picking it up? Like, can, I, can I clean it off as, as I'm picking it up? Wh what if I drop my jacket? Like, can, can I pick my jacket up? I mean, like, what, what if my donkey runs away? I mean, like, wh what, what are we dealing with here? What, what can and can't I do? Two years ago, I had uh, the insane privilege of uh, leading a trip to Israel. And I'll never forget being in our uh, hotel in Jerusalem. And we're waiting for the elevator. And one of the elevators is designated as a Sabbath elevator. Uh, which means that all day on the Sabbath, it spends its day going up and down, stopping at every single floor, opening the doors, slowly closing the doors again, and going on to the next floor, all the, one at a time, all the way up, all the way down. And so we, we asked our, our tour guide to say, hey, what, what's, what's the deal with, with, with this? What's a, what's a Sabbath elevator? And he said, well, they, they set it up that way, so that on the Sabbath, a faithful Jewish person won't have to push the buttons in the elevator. 
Because to some of them, that counts as work. So, so on the Sabbath day, they, they would just stand there waiting for the Sabbath elevator and then, and then slip on and kind of, oh, I'm not touching anything, like no buttons for me. And sir, could you press number? No, 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 no. Pagans. Oh. And, and, and they would ride that elevator one floor at a time all the way down. The Sabbath uh, is alive and well in many Jewish communities. And while I might be kind of picking on the elevator a bit, uh, the heart behind it is actually amazing. And when a community is truly sincere in observing the Sabbath, they actually get to experience as a community something that very few communities on earth get to experience. And so what that typically looks like is that uh, everyone uh, takes the day off of work on Saturday is the day that they Sabbath. And so Friday, everyone gets off work. They come back to their families, even if they have to travel to get there. They make sure everything is clean, that all the food is made the day beforehand and it's in the crock pot or whatever. And, and then as the sun goes down, they pray in the Sabbath as a blessing over one another. Hey, be blessed. This is from God. Rest it's holy, be restored, and enjoy him. And they would, they would usher that in together. But, but try to imagine, if you can, the debate raging in Jesus' day, the, the oral Torah and the various interpretations of what work actually was. Add to all of that the weight of Roman oppression and, and the desperate desire for the promised Messiah and, and, and the kingdom of God. And, and the law began to take on even more importance. Uh, uh, observance of the law became for many the means by which they believed that the Messiah and the kingdom of God would arrive. In fact, some of them believed that if the entire nation of ethnic Israel kept the law, written and oral, for just one day, that the Messiah would come and, and usher in a, a new age. Then you add to that the, the sort of cultural aspect that many others saw the law as the means by which they were to be distinct from the Gentiles and, and the Romans and their oppressors and those who were considered evil. How will we maintain our identity a, a, as God's people under foreign occupation? Well, the law, of course. How do we walk in a covenant relationship with our God? Well, the law. How can we usher in the new age and quicken the arrival of the Messiah? Again, the law for many was the answer. And so you have this huge sort of cultural and religious pressure to observe the law. And you've got all of this debate about what constitutes work and what doesn't. And all of that serves as the backdrop for, the, for this sort of controversial and explosive exchange that happens. At that time, this is what we read earlier this morning. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They're doing work. 
And hopefully, if you haven't tuned me out completely over the last five minutes, you see why this was so controversial. But I want us to notice that, that picking grain out of other people's fields was actually a commonly accepted practice and one that was established by the law itself in Deuteronomy. And most interpreters of the Sabbath would say this is not work. Most people would have said they aren't harvesting, they're just eating. It's, it's fine. But this particular group of Pharisees has taken the hard line. They say, no, as a sign of our sort of pious superiority, in a sense, we're taking the most constricting view of the law because we are the most devout. And we don't really like you. And and so we're going to try to trap you in our conservative interpretation uh, of this law. And so Jesus fires back. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. He and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is where things get a little confusing for us. At least for me, because I'm not Jewish. It it, it takes a little bit of, of unpacking. But what Jesus is doing here is not rejecting the Sabbath. And, and, and he's not breaking the Sabbath or encouraging other people to break the Sabbath. What I naturally hear when I read today's passage is, Jesus, you and your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yeah, well, David did too. And so did the priests. And I'm more important than David and the priests. And so are my followers. So don't condemn us with your silly rules. I'm bigger than the Sabbath. I'm above the law. That, that's what I hear. And, and, and the American spirit within us says, yeah, like stick it to him, Jesus. Like we don't have to follow the rules. But, but interestingly enough, that's actually not what Jesus is saying here. There was a guiding principle within a Torah interpretation that certain duties and laws were more important or would trump others. And, and in fact, there were some places where, where two different laws would, would sort of conflict with each other and you had to choose one over the other. But for example, one, one of their guiding principles was that life is holy. Life is holy and it's from God. And so the preservation of life actually outweighs the duty to Sabbath. So if you have to choose between saving a life and observing the Sabbath, for goodness sake, save the life and then go back to observing the Sabbath. And and so in the story of David that Jesus cites, uh, many of the commentators believe that Jesus... uh, sorry, not Jesus, that David 
that David was, was on the run, that he's running for his life, and that he was at risk of starvation. And so he had to choose, do I kind of break the law that's in place to eat this bread and stay alive, or do I risk starvation? And, and the Jewish interpreters would say, eat the bread. Like, it, it, it's okay. It, if your donkey falls into a ditch, like, don't, don't let it suffer and die because it's the Sabbath. Like, like, pull the thing out of the ditch and then go back to observing the, the, the Sabbath. Preserve the life. Does that make sense? In a similar way, there were different laws in Torah that occasionally conflicted with each other and could not be observed simultaneously. If the priests are commanded by the law itself to perform duties in the temple on the Sabbath day, well, clearly that outweighs the call to not do any work because the law tells them to make this special sacrifice on this day. In order to honor one part of the law, we have to ignore another part. And so what Jesus is doing is he's stepping into the Torah debate, not by discounting the Sabbath or encouraging people to ignore it, uh, but by pointing to the true heart behind it as a guiding principle. He's saying uh, this wasn't meant to be a rigid and suffocating ordeal. Okay, this way of, of life with God, this is a living, breathing thing. And, and the heart behind it, it, it is a command to be followed, of course. But, but it is first and foremost a gift to be received. In fact, in Mark's version of what appears to be this exact same event, he includes this well-known phrase that captures Jesus' view on this topic. It says this. He says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Think about that. He's saying, you're getting wrapped around the axle of religiosity here. Let's take a step back and let's refocus. The Sabbath was made for man, as a gift to be received. Man was not created to serve as a slave to some free-floating concept of the Sabbath, as if it needed its own slaves to serve it, or something like that. You, Pharisees, you've added all of these commands that actually show that you've lost touch. You're, you're, you're missing the point. You're making the Sabbath less of a gift and you've dehumanized it in the process. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In other words, if you understood the true heart behind the Sabbath, you wouldn't be out in the grain fields pointing fingers and, and making accusations. These people... My disciples, they're innocent. They're observing the Sabbath in line with God's true heart for the Sabbath. And you're out here condemning them. You've missed the point. And he captures their mistake by quoting God's words in the Old Testament. He, he, he says he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now, are, are sacrifices to God a good thing? 
Yes. In fact, in Jesus' day, they're, they're a great thing. But they only hold value when they're done with the right heart posture. If you're going to make a sacrifice in the temple with a grumpy heart, then what's the point? Like, you're just going through the religious motions. You're just trying to check something off the list. Keep your sacrifice. God's not interested in watching you go through the motions. He's, not inter- he's most interested in your heart. He's saying, I want a merciful heart that makes sacrifices from this place of mercy. That's, that's what I'm after. But notice that, that in all of this, Jesus is actually affirming the Sabbath and he is in fact using orthodox arguments and interpretations to explain his stance. What he's doing is he's advocating for, for a more humanizing interpretation characterized by the phrase mercy over sacrifice. Or as one commentator put it, people over stuff. Don't aim at religious motions and and strenuous rule keeping and neglect mercy or or neglect your heart posture. Rather, keep keep people and God and love and mercy and, and the heart posture. Make that your first goal and aim and then act out of that heart posture. And the story which follows demonstrates the theological stance that Jesus has taken. If you still have your Bibles open, we're picking up in verse 9. Check this out. Verse 9, it says, Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, into the Pharisees' synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. Again, they're trying to trap him. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Okay, so Jesus walks into their synagogue. And he spots a man with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees have seen him at work. They know what happens when Jesus encounters a sick person. He knows, they know that Jesus is going to heal him. It's happened hundreds of times up to this point. And so they jump in before he has the opportunity to. They say, hey, let's continue this conversation about the law and, and the Sabbath. Is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Again, trying to trap him. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Okay, so according to almost all interpretations, this is okay. It's technically work to pull out the sheep. But remember, there's this overriding principle to preserve life and perhaps even resources. And that overrides the call to refrain from work. He's saying, hey guys, wake up. Even the most conservative among you would would save a sheep. And then he continues, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, and here's his conclusion, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He's reclaiming the heart behind it. This is about God and people and love and restoration, not a suffocating legalism. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Awesome. Time to celebrate, right? But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. They're furious. Not because Jesus healed. He'd done that hundreds if not thousands of times before. But because he healed on the Sabbath. Because he upset their religious preferences. And he called out their hypocrisy. He revealed their thinking as being inconsistent within itself. And actually contrary to God's own purposes and intents. What's the Sabbath for? What's it all about? He took their preconceived notions and turned them upside down. And here's this thing that was absolutely central to their lives, absolutely central to their community, and they'd missed the point. They'd forgotten what it was for. And so Jesus comes and he says, yeah, the Sabbath, it was made for man. Remember that as you approach it. And in defense of the Pharisees, we do this kind of stuff all the time. With the most elemental of human activities. You can go around today and ask people in our society, even followers of Jesus, what's the point of your job? What, what is work all about? Yeah, that thing that you spend most of your waking hours doing, what, what's it for? Well, I just need to make money. And I'd love to retire early so I can do nothing if I can. Really? Is that what the scriptures say about work? Was that God's heart behind it? It seems that man was made to work. It was intended to be a blessing and not a curse, a means of advancing shalom and human flourishing done with God in his presence and for his glory. Okay, so that means we spend most of our waking hours doing something that we don't fully understand. Okay, what about money? What's that for? Well, it's just this substance that's really useful in helping me achieve my material dreams. Really? Is that what the scriptures say? The more I have, the happier I am. That's not what I see in the Bible. Is, is that what Jesus said about money? It, it seems we've made some massive assumptions about what money is for. Hey, what's, what's sex all about? Well, it's this physical activity that makes me feel really good. Really? Is, is that what the scriptures say about sex? Was that God's intent behind it from the beginning? Could, could we be any more one-dimensional in, in our approach? Okay, what's, what's marriage for? Well, it's to make me happy or to uh, allow me to live with the person that I'm currently infatuated with and get some 
tax breaks along the way. <laughs> really? Because the scriptures say that it's a mystery designed to glorify God and reflect his triune nature to the world in a covenant commitment that lasts a lifetime. What's the church for? Well, it's this place that I go to drink coffee with people who are just like me. And we all kind of just support each other and it's a great shot in the arm. It's kind of like a social club that I'm a part of. Really? Is that the compelling vision of the body of Christ that we see in the scriptures? The very vehicle through which his redemptive mission is to be accomplished in the world. It seems that we have misunderstood our most basic human activities and functions. And Jesus wants to redefine them for us and recapture their true beauty and intent. What's the point of work? What's the purpose of sex? What's God's heart behind handling money? What's marriage all about? What's, what's the purpose of the redeemed community that we call the church? What's the Sabbath for? The, these are elemental human activities. As basic and central as the Sabbath day was for first century Jews. And yet somehow... We've missed the point. And it's really easy for us to read the passage and say, ah, oh, those silly Pharisees, they're, they're always missing the point. We, we are so much cooler than they are. And, and, until we dig a little bit deeper and we find ourselves standing right alongside them, in equal need of Jesus' saving, redeeming, transforming touch in our lives. Because without it, we just miss the point. Central to our discipleship to Jesus is learning to think, love, serve, live, and lead like Jesus did. And that includes discerning God's true heart behind all of this stuff. They had all of these basic human functions that we tend to just make assumptions about and, and then run with. Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. That means he's the Lord over your rest. That, that he's the Lord over how you structure your life. And, and if that's true, then it means you actually have to rest. And we need to rest in ways that are honoring to God and see our free time as something that's actually valuable in our discipleship. It means that we see the power of denying ourselves and our own impulses to work and that we carve out time to rest and be restored and reconnect with God. It means we receive our own human limitations as a gift to be celebrated and not a hindrance to be despised. And that we take time to recenter on the things that are most important. What does it look like 
for Jesus to be Lord over your Sabbath or, or your times of rest this week. Or Lord over your work that you're doing the rest of the week. What, what does it look like for, for Jesus to be Lord over your money? You know, when I go to spend money, the two most likely sources for me to consult are my wife and my bank account. And that's pretty much it. And, and within those bounds, I can make wise decisions or, or I can make unwise decisions. But, but how often do, do I just sit and consider how Jesus would want me to spend my money? I, I'm embarrassed to admit to you how small the percentage is. The way I spend my money actually, actually reveals what I think I'm entitled to and, and what I think money is for. And, and I have this whole system worked out in, in my mind surrounding money. And, and all of these thoughts and assumptions and decision-making factors. But how often do I just sit and listen? God, I've got $200 to spend this month. I've got $500. I just got a, a $2,000 tax return, hopefully. <laughs> Jesus, your Lord over this. What do you think? Help me to think like you. Help me to relate to money in the way that you do. Transform my heart and my mind to be more like you. My wife and I are seriously hoping that we get a, a good tax return uh, this year and we don't end up with extra money in the budget very often. And so I have no guarantee if we'll actually get it, but I'm already like dreaming of all of the things that I would spend it on. Do you ever do that? I'm like, oh, I could do this, or we could do this. My mind's just like racing with all of these ideas. And, and yet it's almost frightening how rarely Jesus passes through that flurry. I, I have to catch myself and, and say, actually, Jesus, this is, this is up to you. Would you, would you teach me? Would you show me? Is he Lord over your finances? Or, or how about your relationships? I, I, I know what my relationships are for. I know what I need to put into them. I know what I expect to get in return. I know how to respond when, when someone insults me along the way. I, I have a whole system worked out of investing time and resources and Facebook comments and whatever into relationships and kind of, okay, well, what, what does that mean? What do I expect then to get out of that? What does it look like to take retribution against the person who's, who's harmed me? I, I know what my relationships are for. But how often do I make Jesus Lord over my relationships? It, that he should take kingship and, and actually govern how they play out. That he should be able to define for me what those relationships are for and, and how I'm to approach them. That, that I might begin to see myself as a partner with him in, in the lives of these people around me. As we allow Jesus 
to become Lord over all of these things. Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of our work, of our money, of our sexuality, of our relationships. He, he begins to reorder them and, and transform our thinking around them and, and bring them into this place of harmony and, and what the Jewish people called shalom and, and beauty. He, he retunes our lives, so to speak, so that we are again at last in, in harmony with the orchestra. That, that we begin to experience what, what Jesus called life that is truly life. Not, not all of the ripoffs that we experience when we define things for ourselves and we take them into our own hand. Life as it was intended to be from the beginning. But it starts with the simple recognition that when we take all of the defining into our own hands, just as the Pharisees did, we will begin to miss the point. And we have a Sabbath, and we have a church, and we have a family, and we have friends, and, and sexuality, and a job, and, and a gym membership, and a paycheck, but somehow we've missed the point. And Jesus is right there. And he's saying, I'll, I'll show you. I, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this stuff back to life with you. You don't have to go through the motions anymore. I'll show you how. I'll show you the beauty that's hidden inside of these things that God placed there from the beginning. But first, we have to relinquish our right to define them and, and to give that place of honor back to the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Jesus, the only way that I can sum up this teaching is just an invitation to surrender. We are so quick to compartmentalize our lives and to keep for ourselves the, the right to define these things. We want to define what our money is for. We want to define what sex is about. It, we want to define what our work and our rest and, and everything in between. We are so quick to say, Jesus, why don't you take care of my salvation and let me do the rest? And yet the second we do, I, I think it saddens you because you know. You know that we're missing out. You, you know that we're missing out. And as you approach the Pharisees, there was, this, there was this invitation of saying, hey guys, that's actually not what the Sabbath is for. That's actually not what money is for. That's actually not what sex is about. Do you want to come back to me? Do, do you want to come back to the source? Do you want to, you want to take a step back and refocus and, and, and start over with me? And the scary thing is, that the Pharisees said no. Their response to that invitation was actually to say, hey, let's kill this guy. 
And, and, and we feel that similar invitation, God, and maybe even a similar pressure, that, that similar defensiveness that rises up. I can sense it in my own heart, rising up to not kill you, really, but to just reject you and push you away. And, and yet you're the good shepherd, and you're saying, my way is actually the best way. You will never be more full. You will never be more human than when you relinquish this stuff and help me open your eyes to what it was supposed to be all about. Jesus, may we be soft-hearted disciples in this room and and not the hard-hearted and defensive Pharisees that we so clearly see in today's passage. So we come to you this morning, Jesus. And before we even approach the table, we surrender. We give back to you what is so clearly yours. And in an act of faith, in an act of trust, we, we say that. We say, Jesus, we, we trust you. We trust that your way is actually the best way. And, and that one of the things you do is to save us from ourselves. Open our eyes this morning, Jesus. In your name.